here with Bob Landis, who is a founding partner of the origination team at the Riverside Company, which is a global private equity firm focused on making control and non-control investments in growing businesses valued up to $400 million. Investors and Operators podcast, or in all the content I'm doing, is to humanize our market. We can know the who, the what, and the companies in our industry. What I really want to know is the why. So, so Bob, my first question for you is, what gets you up in the morning? You've been doing this for a while now. How do you have the same amount of energy and motivation and drive to do this? Oh, gosh, you know, that old adage, and I'm, I'm going to steal some of these adages from other people, but, you know, if you enjoy what you're doing, you never have to work a day in your life. Um, I got hired 18 years ago to reinvent uh, origination. At that time, we called it deal sourcing. And that's what it was, but it, a little bit pejorative term. And origination is, uh, over time, is, 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 I think, more appropriate. We can talk about that later. But I was hired to create a, a function within our with our firm and at that time i was the 23rd employee now there's uh, well about 235 employees of riverside plus another 50 operating partners but as we grew um i just got more and more involved in helping to create a, a function that actually worked when i joined my predecessor had been there for four or five maybe eight years and uh, he had a list of 4,000 names and he had six email addresses. I mean, six, I don't think about that. Um, and the contacts and the information flow wasn't very, very strong. Now we have 20, 30, 40,000 names. I can assure you everybody has an email address. We have details on each person in a positive sense, what they do, what they like. We try to make it as human possible when we're talking to people. There's just so much to do. So yeah, uh, what keeps me up in the morning is just, uh, if this is a firm that people enjoy working with each other, and I've been at some pretty dismal organizations in the past where my clients were great, the people I worked with weren't so much, yeah. and that kept me there. But this is, uh, I've had great clients, and I, I thrive on finding new opportunities. Um, I used to do deals and used to put them together. Now I find them. Uh, at some point in my life, my attention span became closer to nanoseconds so i enjoy putting the deals together and i don't mind once i've curated it i developed a relationship with the investment bank or the person bringing me an opportunity and could be the ceo himself i pass it off to our transaction team which we call investment professionals they're the ones that will live with this investment for four or five years now i have some responsibility and i have some love of that company i'm responsible for finding add-ons if it comes on board but there's so many things to do and so many new companies to learn and deal with I mean, every time I pick up a widget, I say, who makes this? Why do they make it? Is there competition? I never thought about that 18 years ago. I was, you know, my last job was to run the aerospace and the defense division uh, for Deutsche Bank and running a, you know, a small group of people, but working with the Fortune 500 in aerospace and defense. I know who makes an F-18. I know who makes an F-16. But the little widgets that go in there, that's the things that we're buying now. We bought five or six companies, uh, smaller little add-ons to one of our portfolio companies, making very, very precision titanium uh, based material and, and, and widgets and components into a, a mainframe of an F-16 or an F-18 or a Huey helicopter. It's just, it's just fascinating. I saw it in a museum one time and something goes like, like, every morning in Africa, a gazelle wakes up. It knows it must run faster than the fastest lion or it will be killed. Every morning, a lion wakes up. It knows it must outrun the slowest gazelle or it will starve to death. The moral, it doesn't matter if you are a lion or you are a gazelle. 
when the sun comes up, you better be running. Anyway, I, I, I had it. this attitude before I read it, but I said, that kind of says it. It's not about the competition. It's just if you want to succeed, you want to excel, you want to create something. If you aren't moving, your competitors will. But it seems like the your motivation is less about a competitive dynamic and competitive push, but there's just something different about you of this, like, I sense this, like in our interactions, there's just something different about you and your level of interest in other people. And I'm, I'm curious to know, where does that come from? Why do you know just 10 times more about other people than what most people think to ask and think to dive deep into? Um, I would say part of it's curiosity. Um, I'm always trying to figure out why they did that and I didn't, you know, call it self-improvement. But I'm also just trying to figure out what makes what makes people work. And it helps me to figure out what makes me work. And every day I'm having realizations about myself. And you would think at my age, that have been long gone. But I'm thinking of things that I did 20, 30, 40 years ago. And now I understand why I did them. So by asking other people, you're constantly reevaluating your own life and hopefully to make yourself better. And so I, I look at people as a reflection of me and, and things I can learn from them. So I'm always asking them questions. And I, as I said, you never learn by talking about yourself. You learn by asking other people questions. So my guess is I probably know more about more, most people than they know about me because I find it boring talking about me, except for this iPad, iPod that you asked me to put together. But that's kind of how I look at things. Um, and it's just, it's just fascinating. When I talk about a business, I, always, I like to get to know people, not because you have to and you should, because that's a good salesman approach, but uh, maybe it comes across as genuine because... Uh, I come back a couple of days later. You know, when I get back to the office, I sometimes put these personal things in there, like kids and family. And uh, when they call and I can get a chance to maybe pull up our CRM, I'll look into it and I say, well, that reminds me, what about, what are they doing now? It could be three years later. Um, you know, people appreciate that you're at least taking the time and I'm not doing it to get a kudo, but it just fosters a deeper understanding of what drives that person. I think, uh, if I understand correctly, you've recently taken up the fiddle. Or the violin? Yeah, yeah. I did. How did you decide to do that? And can you talk us through what it's like to learn something completely new? It's exciting because there's no place to go but up. You know, if you get to be a star at something, uh, if you're not training to your top, your, your, your client, you know, when I start, I, I still can't read music. Um, I know where the notes are and I have to listen to it. And I'm forcing myself to understand where the notes are, but I have to listen to it. But it's, it's exciting because each time I, I, I can see an improvement. You know, if you're in finance, what do you see improvement? You get a bigger bonus, that's, that's not who you are. But something that you can do, maybe lifting weights you can do. But once you reach a certain maximum, there's, there's only a downhill. When you're starting something new, it, it's exciting. I mean, I, I, when I was in college, I wanted to learn something, so I taught myself to play the harmonica and then the recorder. But those are kind of simple things you can kind of figure out and, um, play with the notes and you can listen to music and you can figure out what key to play. But uh, violin or fiddle, you know, there's not much difference between a violin and a fiddle, it's just the person playing it. And maybe the strings, maybe the steel, maybe their cat gut. Or, but, uh, um, so I'm you know, not ready for uh, Carnegie Hall and never will be and probably not ready to play in front of anybody in their tune. But I just enjoy seeing the progression and you know, this, this, this environment is giving me more time to play. Uh, not every day. I think we all get sort of down and say, got to do this, and you put it off because you're doing work. But um, yeah, 
I, I didn't know you knew about that, the fiddle, but yes. <laughs> <laughs> I do my research. Um, so let's, let, let's rewind a little bit and tell us where you're from and just what it was like growing up before you went to the military. Yeah, I grew up in a very, really small town at the time called Napanee, Indiana, born in Elkhart. Something like 50% of the people in Napanee were Amish, so you get to, you're driving in your 55 Studebaker and there's somebody with a horse and buggy coming the other way and uh, I had babysitters who were Amish, so I got to see a whole different side of life. Um, my grandfather grew up in a town called Convoy, Ohio. It's not even on the map still, I don't think, but it's right between between uh, Van Wert and uh, Fort Wayne, Van Wert, Ohio. Little farm town, he was a, a mechanic, and at that time, he, was a, he, he could make things. He had a giant garage, he had a lathe, and he would grind his own gears. He would make pieces out of metal. If he didn't have the car part, he had to drive 20 miles away to work to get all the parts. And he was the only garage in town. And I grew up in that environment. And I wonder why so many farmers were always bringing him food. You know, they bring him cauliflower and, and potatoes, and tomatoes, and meat, because they didn't have cash. So it was, <laughs> I didn't realize the later in high, college and high school, this was, this was the real barter system back in the 50s. And uh, he would work on their, uh, their tractors, he would work on their trucks. He would drive out to see them, always in a good mood. And I just, I, could, I didn't realize that. I just sort of got an attitude that that's kind of new. You're, you're working with the people that you're collecting from, but you're giving something to them as well. Um, so I grew up in Midwest the, my entire life, moved to Illinois, a small little college, high school of 4,000 people. So that was a shock coming from a little town like Napanee. I mean, I grew up in a small town in Western Springs uh, before, but going to high school with 4,000, that's a small college. Uh, never got overwhelmed by it just got to try to meet as many people as i could and kind of learn from them and figure they knew more than me and soon they realized we're all on the same voyage everybody's trying to learn from everybody else and then you sort of figure out the ones that are schmoozers and the ones that are a little bit disingenuous in life and the ones that are really a, a, a person you want to get to know better what kind of person were you in high school how would you characterize yourself um okay athlete not great i mean i was on i did the rings high bar and high school and thought I was really good till I went to a couple of the tournaments and saw how good really good is. <laughs> uh, did cross country. I always regret I never did football or uh, uh, any of the other team sports, but my sons clearly surpassed me on that and I got them involved in all that. So I didn't learn as much about teamwork, but I always learned about working with people. Um, and I think that's, that's held me well. Now, when you transitioned into the military, um, can you talk a little bit just about your experience, how long were you in, and and maybe even more importantly, your transition out? Yeah, well, there's, um, I guess you call it the long gray line. Uh, my dad was a, a lieutenant colonel in the Army, and that was during World War II, and he was with Patton's 3rd Division, and he was in the artillery, and, you know, I was always sort of fascinated by that, never thought I was going to go in the Army. My brother, uh, oldest brother, had... Um, had asthma, so he couldn't go in. Um, and so I never thought much about it. Then my uh, other brother, uh, four years older than me, went to the Citadel. So from a Yankee going down to South back in that time, it was <laughs> it was a <laughs> unique experience. Um, but he did well. Uh, he went into, into armor and um, spent quite a few years there and then moved over to a different branch. But he spent 20 years, got out as lieutenant colonel as well. And I guess it just, uh, I just thought, well, that's guess what I'm gonna do. 
Um, and this was, of course, during the Vietnam War, so not a lot of people thought about this, what I'm going to do. They had to think long and hard. And I went through ROTC. Uh, that was a decision. It was tough for me to make. My dad wanted me to go, and he said, you, you have to go for the first two years, then you can drop out if you want. And uh, I remember him asking me after the first two years, are you going to stay in? Well, that was a pregnant. We were on a boat. And uh, I didn't even answer for about three minutes because that was it. I had to say yes or no because, you know, with your, with your father, it's, uh, it's not great. And I finally said, okay, I'll just do the plunge. Yeah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stay in the next two years. And I, you know, at that time, you're surrounded by a lot of people in college. Um, Vietnam War wasn't terribly popular. I had short hair at the University of Colorado. Everybody had long. So right away, you were sort of identified as not cool. But um, I will say that it's the best thing I ever did. I mean, it taught me so much when I went in there for those six years, going through uh, the training programs. Uh, after ROTC, you go through advanced training. I was in there for six years. Uh, and then I decided, okay, I've done what I need to do. I've proved to me that I can make good decisions. So at the end of those six years, uh, I said, I've done what I need to do. And I am at a point that, do I want to stay in or try something different? It was a, it was a big, big risk. Everybody says, well, to get out of the military, that's easy. You know, it's, it's, it's pretty simple life. You're with people, you're with a team, the team I didn't have in high school or college. You're with people you enjoy working together with. And there's no pretense. You know what they make. Um, you don't have to worry about wearing fancy clothes because they all wore the same clothes, same uniform. Uh, so there's a lot of decisions that just stripped away to just dealing with the person. You know what their rank is, they're in charge or they're not. You work together and you all work as a team no matter what. Uh, and getting back into the real world was a real dilemma for me. I said, gee, I'm so used to it. I, I know where my salary is coming from. I know what I have to do. Uh, obviously, you're in harm's way or not. but the rest of it is pretty simple in life. And getting out in the civilian life after you've been in the military is a rough, rough transition, I think. It was for me. Um, I had to start thinking about my medical, my health care. I had to start thinking about how do I get a car? How do I make money? What about my housing? Um, it's just all the things that we take for granted that people have grown up in college that didn't go into the military. you got to start all over. Um, and then Can you, you put this in a context and approximately what year was it? Uh, I got in 76, 77. I came out, yeah, I came out of active in uh, 1970, late 76, early 77, um, and then went to grad school. Came home uh, a little bit early. I, I spent about six, nine months over in Germany, my last assignment, and just kind of hung out. If I hung out, I got a job, taught out the Berlitz School, something different I'd never done before, thinking about being a teacher. And then my father, I was notified, was... Uh, uh, he had terminal cancer, and uh, I came back early, spent uh, three months with him, and postponed going to grad school until the summer uh, while he passed away. Uh, and then went to grad school and then started looking for you know jobs. Um, had some offers uh, in uh, New York City, had some offers with uh, some great banks that I thought I could have a career with, like uh, Continental Illinois. Pacific Crest. Uh, you probably don't even remember who those are. Those are big banks in the Midwest. Thank God I went to Chemical Bank in New York and had an offer from Chase as well. And of course, Chemical Chase, man, had all merged together at JP Morgan. So uh, I would have been with them, but, uh, you know. 
And then I transitioned from uh, commercial banking to investment banking and, of course, to uh, private equity. If we can rewind just a little bit, because I think it's um, important kind of who you are. Um, you know, I look at my dad who passed from a brain tumor, my brother who passed from a brain tumor, um, and just how, you know, I almost, I posted about this last week and I felt guilty just because, you know, it's been five to 10 years and it's almost like I forgot who they were. And my mom messaged me and she said, you know, it's your dad's birthday. And I felt guilty for not being emotionally connected to that. And it was only in the past couple of weeks when I just was reminded of how they've affected me. So I'm, I'd just like to know, like, how, how did he impact you and the person that you've become? As I say, no person is ever useless. You can always learn from them what to do and what not to do. And um, I learned a lot of things about my father, some I learned after he passed, about his life as I talked to my brothers. Because I was, you know, I was uh, fairly young when, uh, uh, not young when he, when he passed, of course, but I never really focused so much on my father, uh, uh, my first two brothers. They were much closer. My dad had been, he was in World War II when my uh, oldest brother was still just a kid. So when they reunited, it was pretty strong. I just kind of plopped into a normal family. You know, it was a lot of transition during the, the 50s and 60s when I was born. But uh, he was always not very vocal, pretty taciturn. Uh, ergo, that, that conversation on the boat, uh, first vacation he ever took with me ever uh, alone because both my brothers already graduated, they're off, and one was in Vietnam, one was working, and I was still in high school. Um, or I, I, sorry, not high school, but second year in college. Uh, it was a real bonding experience, but yeah, I didn't exactly know how to respond, and I just simply, yes. And very little emotion, but a little smile on his face. And I thought he was doing that because, um, well, you know, I was in the military, your brother's in the military, in retrospect, it was the opportunity to learn more things in such a short period of time to make me grow up. And I really regret that we don't have a draft, um, not because I happen to think about the military as uh, the right career. Other places have a draft that you can do social service, but something that yanks everybody out of their comfort uh, zone, puts them in a situation where they have to give back to society one way or another. And that's what it did to me, being in the military. Uh, you know, having to counsel gentlemen that are 10 time, or 10 years, 15 years older than me on how to handle their marriage or how to handle their drinking problem. Here I am, a 23-year-old. Um, you know, that's your job. And you have to think about it long and hard. You have to get advice from other people. Sometimes you have to suck it up and hope you made the right decisions as to talk to these people. And sometimes you have to make some tough decisions um, towards punishment, towards... Uh, teaching people that you just can't turn, you can't turn your head when they do something wrong, particularly in the military. Because if they do it in peacetime, they're gonna do it in wartime and bad things happen to other people. You, you have what, two sons? Two sons, yeah. If they're having this same conversation 40 years from now, what do you hope that they're gonna say about you? Um, well, you know, I said that you can learn a lot of things, what not to do. Uh, my dad spent a lot of time at work and a lot of time with my mother um, 
on the weekends playing golf. So I didn't see much of them. And I know that uh, they would say that I spent probably a lot more time than I should have, and I don't regret a moment. So uh, I hate to get emotional, but these are, uh, you know, things I don't usually talk about. But uh, yeah, I'd, I'd say hopefully I've been a mentor to them, and hopefully I, I hope they've learned things that I've made mistakes at, bringing them up that they won't repeat. And that's, I think, when you have a parent, you can't blame them for everything. You can also learn from them the things that they should have done or they didn't do, and maybe because they couldn't. So um, I think I've given them a pretty good basis to make judgments when they become parents. Sure hope so. Yeah, I guess being an example, kind of going back to the military, um, can you talk about, you know, there are so many veterans who are transitioning now, and it's a difficult time to do this. If they are, you know, thinking about a career in finance um, or just anything, what are some lessons that you would like to kind of share with the transitioning veteran community on general success for finding that next career? Yeah, I'd, I'd say coming back to civilian, particularly if you've had 20 years in military and those that have gone straight out of college like I did, whether enlisted or as an officer, um, it's, I think it's a very difficult transition because you're used to asking for guidance uh, and in the military, you get it. I think in civilian life, if you don't have the right mentor, you can ask for guidance, you won't get it, you might get sabotaged, or the guidance might be wrong because sometimes people don't know how to deal with other people if they haven't been in an organized environment. And it's like asking somebody directions. How many times have you gone up to somebody and you say, which way is this? And if they're hesitating, you know, they're just going to tell you something because they feel they have to tell you something. And it's going to be the wrong one. And when I get that hesitation, I tell my sons, don't trust that person. I ask two or three more people because that's what people do. Either they want to help, and then it's always those mischievous people that send you the wrong way. Whereas in the military, you come back and you, you wind up trusting people. And I don't think 100% trust outside of the military or any close confinement is a good thing. There has to be a healthy skepticism. How many times do you open up your email from somebody and I say, I'm not going to click on that. And I got to the point now, I just delete it. Or I made a mistake one time, I sent an email back. I don't know if this is spam or not. Um, what is this about? And the person sent it back to me. Oh, don't worry, this is such and such. I still sent it to our IT people and said, this is spam. I said, this guy's good. There's somebody who wants to destroy my laptop and he's taking the time to respond to my email. <laughs> so uh, I guess I would say, I gotta hate to say don't trust, but just be very cautious who you trust in, in the civilian environment. Uh, in your, if you are working with a group of people, you can tell those that, God, I hate to use the word suck up, but you can tell the people that are out for themselves. Uh, you can tell the people that really want to help and the people that want, it, want you to grow as much as they want themselves to grow. Those are the, the mentors and they could maybe be peers and co-equals, but at some point you'll, you'll figure that out for yourself. So it sounds like the key takeaway is like to find a mentor, almost like an informal advisory team to help you yeah. with that transition. Yeah, I think so. And be, be careful, at least in, in the initial stages, sharing your personal life. Uh, because it, it, it can come back to bite you if, you, if, you, if you're too open. It's like everybody puts things up on, uh, 
on YouTube and they put them up in the in the in, in, in the in the cloud. And that will come back to bite you if you're not cautious of what's been posted out there. I mean, the first thing a recruiter does is they start spinning and, and looking at all your Google sites and your YouTube. And I talk to people all the time that they don't give people the benefit of the doubt when they get that resume, they look and see what is that person posting? And that may not be the impression you want to give to people. When you, when you look at Riverside, I mean, you started 18 years ago and business development as a profession I don't even know if it was, you know, really defined back then. Can can you talk about just the the evolution of business development or origination, just as a profession within the deal community? Um, no, you're right. It, uh, business development really didn't exist. There were a group of about ten or fifteen, and if I just mentioned a few, Florida Capital Partners had uh, Jay Jester. Uh, 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 David Melosha, Glenn Okens, those guys were a team of business development. They've all went out to create their own jobs. Well, one went to Audex, and David and Glenn went and started their own companies. Uh, Gretchen Perkins started at one uh, in PE firm, and now she's a rock star at Huron. If you look at um, Hammond Kennedy, the guy that was there. Ted Kramer. Ted Kramer, yeah. Ted, uh, you know, he, he played professional hockey for a while. Uh, Ted uh, started business development at the same time I did. Now he's running that. So there was a small core of about 10 or 15, 20 of us that kind of got together and say, how, how do we break into the PE firm? Because we're sort of appendages, but nobody wants to do anything with us. And a few wise people that run each, man each of those firms said, we need somebody doing business development. Riverside, I think, was one of the very few at the very beginning. There were three people running Riverside, a business development guy and the two founding partners, uh, Baylor Stewart, and uh, Stuart Cole. And they realized that they can't be chasing deals and doing deals with only three people. And if they're all chasing deals and they're suddenly they disappear from the face of the earth, running that deal into the ground, trying to buy it, whether it succeeds or not, when they come up for air, they go back to that investment bank and say, well, how come you haven't been showing me deals? They said, we haven't returned my emails for three, four months. And you do that a couple of times, your sources dry up. So they said, we need somebody to start bringing in the deal flow. And going back to that guy who did it, he, you know, he had a database of 4,000. He wasn't tech savvy, I'm not saying I am, but he didn't do much by email, but he did a lot of phone. All the other people I've been talking to had the same issues with, with having to start it up, but they didn't have to create credibility within their firm. We at Riverside have always had it, and Stuart Cole will always say that origination is the lifeblood of deal flow for Riverside. and we've maintain that across all nine funds now. The other ones it was even more of a struggle to justify, to get paid, what do you do? You know, this is my account. Why are you calling on this investment bank? Well, that's what I was hired to do. It took a long time and I would mentor them a little bit because I didn't have to worry about that. It was just one less stumbling block that I had because I had the support and, and origination still does and all the people that are on origination with Riverside had the support of the original founders because uh, this is a division of labor like Ford. Uh, it was it was tough, and the key point there in those days, 18 years ago, and we were all invited whenever we were in fundraising because they wanted to know who these people were. They said, "Well, why are you around? What are you doing? Can't these investment professionals do it?" You had to justify over and over and over why you were key and important to the pre-e firm. Now I can guarantee you, any limit that goes in. They want to talk to the person doing deal origination. 
they want to know what they're doing. And if they don't have a deal origination, now the partners and the founders of those PE firms have to justify why they haven't gone that route. Why haven't they spent more time specializing in the industry instead of being a generalist? Why they haven't gotten the idea of having operating partners? All the things, all the toolkit parts, the various aspects of PE world that are just generic now and necessary um, have to be justified why you don't have them. So I think it's fair to say that you are one of the most credible people in the industry when it comes to origination and DD. Um, so I'd love to ask, what is the difference between a good BD person and a great BD person? Being proactive. In one word, proactive. And I'd love to expand on that. You can be an order taker. And because people know you're out there, you meet somebody, you wait for them to call you and say, hey, do you have a deal? Um, by being proactive, and I'm not saying, God forbid, don't call up a investment bank say what do you have for me now they don't want to hear that they hear that from so many mediocre originators uh, what they want to hear is hey i just want to tell you what we're doing now what we're working on what we're focusing on by the way we do have companies for sale and that that rings a bell because the investment bank needs you know they need to source exits as well so they you know to feed their uh their firm and when you're talking to them, get to know that person I can't tell you how many people I've said, have you called this person? Well, I sent them an email. Even today, the, the, the young people coming on board, and that gets fixed very quickly. Okay, emails are fine. Once you have a contact, have you ever spoke to this guy? No. Do you know anything about him? No. Why don't you call them up? You know, out of sight, out of mind. If you can leave something behind with that person about who you are, when that maybe associate at another investment bank is being asked by the partner, who should we invite to this uh, to get a, a teaser, he's going to think of you or she's going to think of you. If you leave some memorable trait, it's about people. It's about memory. You know, and again, out of sight, out of mind, no matter how memorable you are, if you're not constantly refreshing the memory uh, banks of people, uh, and we do it often because we do buy 60 companies a year and we sell 15 to 16. Again, they're all, a lot of them are small, but we send out a press release. So we're constantly reminding people we're active. That's not enough. You still need to have that person-to-person -person contact. They need to know you're around in case they have an opportunity to send to you. Same thing with uh, seeing people on, on in the circuit, whether it's an ACG event, meeting new investment bankers, new boutiques, new lenders, new lawyers. You don't know where your deal is going to come. You got to kiss a thousand frogs and get one deal. You know, one so, percent of everything we see, we buy. I'd love to actually dive a little bit deeper into that the the numbers here because I think that's also applicable to job transition. I, I think that there's not enough testing going on when it comes to job transition. And there is a lot, I think there's an expectation uh, that is too high that the, the first thing that comes out of the military, for example, needs to be something really good or great. But I, I'd love to know, like, maybe in your life, the experimentation that maybe intentionally or in, <laughs> unintentionally happened, but resulted in actually something good in your career. Yeah. Well, you know, they say, and I heard this a long time ago, a resume is the ability to put eclectic experiences into career goals. I mean, not everybody is going to cure cancer by the time they're 21, and, and they're not going to be a Rhodes Scholar. You were talking about just experimentation, and I, I guess the reason why I ask it is when I look at 
back on the 10 years of my career since uh, 13 years of my career so far, I, I got so frustrated for years. And, and, I, and it's, it literally took me 12 years to finally found what I love and what I'm passionate about. Um, and, and, and it's, I'm curious to know like how that has been for your life and, you know, what advice you would have to people who are experimenting either in the transition or just generally in their job function and doing things that are different and new. Yeah. When, um, when I graduated from college, <clears throat> uh, I was told that you'll probably have one career, maybe different, same job, different companies, but you'll have one career in your lifetime. So make a good choice on that. And when my kids were in high school, I used to go to career day, sophomore year, and I would tell these kids a little bit about my life and then high school set that up for them. And I would ask them, I said, what do you want to do? And, you know, it's like pulling teeth from these kids, but every once in a while I want to do this, I want to do that. Okay. And I said, well, let me just put a number up here on the board. And I put a one, a three, and a seven. And the one was when I was in college, one career. By the time I got out of the military, well, after, after six years active duty, the, it had transitioned already back in the 70s, 80s, that people would probably have three careers, not jobs, or three different careers in their lifetime. And as of about three or four years ago, and I don't know what the number is now, but statistics have said that most people graduating from college will have seven different careers. Not seven different jobs, but seven different specific careers. Now I've had my three, and my three was uh, military, investment banking, commercial banking, and PE, although PE and those all sort of merged together, but three different careers, three different, I think, different skill sets. Um, and so I told these kids, and I would say the same thing to people out of college, find something that you think might be interesting. Doesn't have to be what has to be the most important thing, but grab onto it and learn from that and just do it. Just grab on something that you think, and if it doesn't work, admit your mistake or admit that you've learned something and you know what you don't want to do. It's easy when you're, after you, you know, you get out of college in your first job, but you know, later on in the military, same thing. It doesn't have to be perfect. There's nothing perfect in life. In every job I've ever interviewed, I thought this is the place I'm going to live forever and work for. Uh, well, you know, Riverside is, but I, I knew the firm before I joined. I knew the, the founders, one of the founders. We were friends. It, uh, it didn't get me hired, but I knew him. I knew the, the way they worked, and it, it's just the right culture. But you, you, you don't always get lucky like that. So that resume that you've got there, take those eclectic experiences and learn on each one. I love it. Going back to the topic on ACG, in, in the past couple of years, there have been a number of organizations that are either regionally focused or service focused or within a particular sub-community like women in finance and there might be four organizations that have started to develop and you know I, I think that what's on a lot of people's minds is do I need to go to ACGs anymore which ones do I go to is this, do I actually get deals out of this? C can you talk about where we are at right now with ACG New York and what you think the future of ACG New York is and maybe even as of the organization? Sure. Um, I think there will always be a place for ACG. 
I don't think ACG has ever positioned themselves as the only organization you should be a part of to grow your database, to grow your contacts. But for the lower end of the middle, and especially for the lower end of the middle market, it is the foundation and the starting point. Now, I'm a little biased because I'm on the board of ACG New York, and I have been for a good part of these 18 years. I've come on, come off a couple of times because we've, we started to establish sort of grandfather and you can always stay on. So I, I got off and I still did the same job. I, I put together a PE to PE dinner uh, every quarter. I've been advisor to the rest of the people when I wasn't on the board. Um, it's the place that is the most accepting and open to bring in people and getting to talk to lawyers, talk to buy side, talk to buy, sell side, talk to investment bankers, talk to PE firms, anybody that's part of our market. Because you never know what part of the market is going to be hot, what part is not, where you're going to find your next transaction, particularly myself in origination. The um, our um, uh, investment professionals, um, the guys who are doing the deals, some of them come to the events and we, we, we bring them to the ones that we think that are important. But if you're on, in business development, origination, that's essential as a starting point because that's where you're going to meet people you would never see anyplace else. You go to Intergrowth, which is the big one that got canceled this year. You're not going to see all of the people. You're going to see the ones that can really afford to go there, the larger firms. You go to the local chapters. You don't have to go to every meeting, but you're going to constantly meet people you've never met before. And it goes to the same thing. You're going to learn from them. You're going to develop contacts. They will say, have you thought about this? Have you heard about this? People want to be helpful in this industry because what comes around goes around. You know, you do for me, I'll do for you. It's a, it's a very egalitarian, I'll help you. It's a team effort. And everybody's there to, to buy a company, sell a company, sell their services, but they're also there to network. And not just between the two people, but maybe they can refer something. Because, you know, like I say, you know, the circle there, uh, it, what comes around goes around. Uh, we've covered a ton of ground and this type of podcast is precisely why I, I love doing this, where we just see who people really are. And I appreciate you taking the time for this. I appreciate it. I appreciate the, uh, the, the hints, uh, a little bit of walk down memory lane, some things that I hadn't thought about for many years and it did uh, sort of affect me a little bit, but I, I appreciate the opportunity.